you know, some of the conversations I've been getting into uh, in Clubhouse with some of our guests is, are we repeating history? We, we get all these referrals and in 2004, they rewrote the, the law just because one of the main reasons was because we were getting so many referrals and so many kids were that were becoming eligible as students with learning disabilities because people hadn't done interventions or tried interventions before they referred them. And so my question is, if we are, if in fact this, we've been down that path before where we felt like we were, we have been having so many kids qualify for a learning disability in the past and they tried to put interventions in place to prevent that, then why are we doing this again? What What is going on here? And, you know, we've had some guests on here that um, have inferred that it's because uh, we do IQ tests and that IQ tests and comparing IQ, using IQ tests to, com to compare it to their achievement, this whole ability versus uh, achievement discrepancy had caused that. But, um, you know, a lot of things have happened since then. And so I, you know, and I think, I feel like Dr. Schultz has been trying to tell us about some of these things in various episodes, but he hasn't really gotten a chance to really explain it all. And I know he's been through it all, he experienced that, and uh, sent me some things to read, uh, which I really enjoyed reading. Um, so I'm going to put them in the pen. Um, but uh, before we, uh, when, while I'm doing that, we'll get started with a little bit of a summary of the document that he um, had had me review. And it is the President's Commission on Excellence in Special Education from 2002. So first of all, I'm going to introduce Dr. Schultz. Uh, he is currently a full professor at West College uh, of Education at Mid University. He is the co-author of Core Selective Evaluation Process, also known as CSEP, and he has written numerous peer-reviewed articles presented at the national and international level and has provided trainings across the country to schools and state departments of education. Interests include His interests include the SLD identification, including dyslexia, MTSS, and students with emotional behavioral disturbances. So um, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Schultz. We really appreciate you having, having you here. I'm glad to be here. Now, are you at NASP or are you, you didn't go this year? No, I didn't. Uh, I am at home in my uh, house right now. Okay. I just got back from uh, um, TK's, which was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I saw a lot of people on Twitter and different places at NASP. So I thought, oh, well, I hope I'm not having to take him away from that because it sounded really exciting. <laughs> um. All right, so this report, I'm just going to give a little bit of a summary of what the report says, the reasons why they had written the report or wanted to look into the report. It says that young people with disabilities were dropping out of high school at twice the rate of their peers. So basically, special education wasn't working. Uh, another bullet point was that enrollment rates of students with disabilities in higher education 
were still 50% lower than enrollment among the general education population. That most public school educators did not feel well prepared to work with children with disabilities in 1998. Only 21% of public school teachers said they felt very well prepared to address the needs of students with disabilities and another 41% said they felt moderately prepared. What moderately well prepared? The of the 6 million children in special education at the time, almost half of those were identified with specific learning disability. In fact, this group had grown to more than 300 had grown more than 300% since 1976. So between 1976 and 2002, the LD population had grown 300%. And of those with specific learning disability, 80% are there, um, are there simply because they haven't learned how to read. Thus, many of the children receiving special education, up to 40%, are there because they weren't taught to read. And the reading difficulties may not be the only area of difficulty, but it is the area that resulted in special education placement and sadly few children were placed in special education. Um, and the few children that were in special education were actually able to close the achievement gap to a point where they could read and learn like their peers. And that bullet point just, really, again, really reminded me of repeating history because although, yes, children are learning to read, but they're only, we're finding now that with this history of the three queuing system and everything that they're getting to a third or fourth grade level and not really not going much farther beyond that. So you would have a whole group of people in science of reading saying we're not really teaching kids to read. So that that's another and by reading, usually they're meaning like decoding multisyllable words. So um, that that's another interesting point. And then the children, um, the last point that they had here was that children of minority status were overrepresented in some categories in special education. African-American children were twice as likely as white children to be labeled mentally retarded and placed in special education and they were also likely to be labeled emotionally disturbed and placed in special education. So of course that's always a concern. So uh, Dr. Schultz, can you just give us um, any other summary of uh, um, our things that kind of stood out to you about this report? Uh, yeah, um, a little bit of that history of that report. Uh, and we're talking about a report that was published in 2002. And at that, in 2001, uh, no child left behind was was put back out there. It was you know it was a, a reauthorization of the uh, education. Uh, I, I forget all the the letters of that. The Education for All Handicapped Act, uh, or no Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Sorry about that. Yeah. And so anyway, one of the main purposes of that report was to align those. We lost you. I can't hear you. Purposes of that, while the the right. report laid the groundwork for many of the changes that were were placed in the law in 04. and some of the changes are still, you know, they're there. Some of the changes they they suggested aren't there, and I mean they didn't they didn't put in the law. One of the one of the recommendations was actually instead of giving a triennial evaluations uh, to do them yearly 
to reevaluate for kids using norm reference tests. That was literally in there. They said, if we're going to use them, uh, do it for, uh, you know, do it yearly. Um, what else do I want to say about the document itself? There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of Nickleby stuff in there. They, they really did address the highly qualified stuff. Uh, uh, can y'all hear me now? Yes. We can I hear don't you. know what, what happened. How far into the answer did y'all get? Uh, we didn't get much. You said that some things that you expected to show up in the, in the document didn't oh, end up in the document. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly, briefly summarize just what mm -hmm. I said. Uh, some of the recommendations did not make it in there, which was one, which, which, which is interesting was a yearly evaluation than other than three years, but almost everything else did make it into the 04, uh, reauthorization. Mm-hmm. So some things I had, uh, some notes I took was that they wanted, some of the recommendations were to focus on results rather than identification and placement. So they didn't want people to just say, uh, yes, the child's eligible or no, they're not. They, they wanted them to also focus on making, finding, making sure that special education was working basically, right? And then prevention and intervention was a big part of it, that children in special education or general education students were, right? And, and the children, yeah. mm -hmm, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. The children in special education are general education students first. And then, and that really hit home because I remember sitting in a meeting with one of my directors and it, um, she was saying how we had so much money in our special education funds and that uh, she had met with the board members and the board members had decided to absorb those funds into the general education funds. And I was just like mortified and floored that this could happen. How can you take special education money and maybe perhaps spend it on who knows what, uh, you know, the coach for some football team and, you know, at some uh, high school, you yeah. know, <laughs> I, I, I was just mortifying, but reading this, you know, they really wanted everybody to see that special education students or general education students first. So they did recommend that they absorb special education funding into the general funds. Uh, so yes, a, you know, a student, they do give money per student, but, and they give more money for special, some, for special education students. And when they give more money for certain special education students over others, but still that all goes into general funds and that is used to hire special education teachers as well. So that's where it's still being used for special education students. It's just not as segmented out. And so then they had um, to provide a recourse when um, special education students fail. Uh, I guess that's when we start having the failure arts and compensatory services and all of that. And then to have a, and they, they talked about the compliance, the culture of compliance not being productive. We're spending so much time on making sure we're compliant. And I don't feel like that's changed. I feel like we still spend a lot of time on making sure we're compliant. And that current methods of identifying were not valid and leading to misidentification. And that's the whole um, IQ achievement discrepancy. And that teachers are, um, the teachers were not highly um, qualified. And I know talking to a lot of, this is my area of interest is RTI. So of course I'm going to go to those founders of RTI and ask them the questions and they they are very much um, hanging their hat on you know the the fact that that um, that of getting rid of this ability versus 
um, achievement difference. And um, so that was some, those were some of the recommendations of the report. Yes, and I'm looking at uh, some recommendations that really go right around uh, the identification part because they had, they had four big recommendations, was identify and intervene early. Uh, and they wanted to simplify the identification process. They made a point that it's it's a lot more complicated for the high incident disabilities like SLD. And this is where the RTI was written in there. That was another recommendation. And another one that we really don't talk about a whole lot is universal design, which is design is is you know really general ed reform of differentiating instruction. Uh, to where they won't need special ed and to funding what popped in my mind Nazi, and I'm, I'm sure this because uh, it was all about a lot of it was about money not all of it but a lot of it is about money but in 2004 is, is when they were talking about taking money from special ed to give to general ed is that 15 percent and it, that 15 percent was surrounded by if school districts over identify kids for learning disabilities, then then 15% of those funds could be used for early intervention to try to prevent those disabilities. Because that was another kind of gist of the argument uh, is uh, that we were in 2002, we were, we were still doing discrepancy and that was a wait to fail model. And they wanted uh, more of an effort on prevention. And at that same time period, one, one other kind of policy uh, uh, paper that came out was, was the National Reading Panel. They just published their 20 years later paper. You know, where, have we done anything 20 years later? Which kind of led when we were having that conversation is all this stuff we talk about is what was recommended 20 years ago and, and we're not there. I mean, it's obvious that uh, uh, our early intervention is, well, early intervention now is special ed, and that's never been the intent. And uh, RTI uh, is still just a, uh, uh, there's maybe pockets of excellence, but there's just no systematic RTI. And there's no, Texas doesn't give us any kind of uh, policy uh, force to, to implement RTI. It's, it's, there's still a lot of maybes or can or shells in the law. Some other states, Dr. Stevens and I, that was one of the first articles we wrote. We, when, when all the laws changed, we, we studied how states implemented it. And states that, that really do RTI well have mandated uh, times that a kid needs to be in RTI, mandated uh, how many, uh, um, oh, how many interventions have to be tried. And even some states talk about uh, the responsiveness. What is, you know, when, when is, you know, when, are, what's a non-responder versus a responder? Um, but what's interesting is the, uh, the articles that I, what I like to do, like this policy uh, documents, what I like to do with policy documents is, is where's their source of information? And, and the uh, they only cite you know there's always this one when they when the people who are just really advocates for RTI they always cite the comment section of IDEA the regulations that say well cognitive tests aren't necessary but I want to read two lines out of this uh, two sentences out of this document and and I want to share who the authors are it says there's no compelling reason to continue to use IQ tests in the identification of learning disabilities. And if we eliminated IQ tests from the identification, mm -hmm. focus on to making sure that individuals are getting the services they need 
and away from the energy that's going into eligibility. Well, I, I think those are really two separate issues, identification and, and providing services. Uh, because if you think about the time it takes relatively in a kid's career, that's just a little blip in their time. But here's where they, uh, uh, you know, they said the reason they do not like uh, the, where uh, the reason we shouldn't be using um, IQ tests. It says the commission recommends that appropriate steps be taken to amend current federal regulations to indicate that IQ achievement discrepancies and therefore IQ tests are not necessary. And they always hang their hat on that. And where they get that statement from, uh, and I'll send you this article, I pulled it today, was a uh, tooth, uh, was from Steubing et al., uh, which was had uh, Jack Fletcher was one of the authors of it, uh, and uh, Reed Lyon and uh, Sharon Vaughn. And there are those those are uh, guys are, are great researchers. Don't get me wrong. They are they are RTI proponents. And at the time of this report, who was the president? Uh, a Texan by the name of George Bush. And Reed Lyon was uh, he's at SMU. Last I heard. Uh, was uh you know a, a part of his uh education commission at the time so there's a lot of a lot of stuff really happened in uh had a texas spin on it but uh let me make this point and then i'll let you go to your next comment or question is they cited one article uh that hadn't even been published yet at the time it hadn't even been published it was in in, in press um and it was just really talking about how iq achievement is not a good model and they always contend there's no difference between a kid with a learning disability and just the kid who can't read. So therefore, we don't need an IQ test to discriminate those kids. We just need to treat them. I, I get the treatment part of it, but uh, their whole argument is identification needs to lead to treatment. Well, identification, one of the, the leaders of the field that I've always listened to is James Kaufman. And, and unfortunately, if we are going to dedicate resources to different groups, we have to have a system to classify and sort people. It's just, it's a necessary evil to classify and sort. Um, but finally, the, the, the issue then and the issue now, 20 years later, is there's a whole other body of literature that says, yes, cognitive tests uh, do, uh, do help differentiate kids that kids with learning disabilities. And even, even some of those authors have authored articles that talk about different brain structures, that these kids are different and, uh, it doesn't really, um, uh, include the exclusionary factors and all of that. Um, but anyway, it is, uh, it, it's just all very interesting to me, uh, because here we are 20 years later having the same conversation that was done 20 years ago. But, but now, 20 years later, we do have uh, um, 20 more years of research. And so there's a whole body of research that says, hey, RTI and, and, and cognitive testing can get along really well. It doesn't need to be an either or choice. So we do have ways to classify and sort kids properly uh, and we have ways that, that treat those kids. The, the one missing piece is we wait till they're identified before we really intensify the instruction where, where that should be flipped. And that was, that's, that's where we have not done a good job in 20 years. I mean, I think even IQ testing, we still can't do our whole full cognitive and IQ testing if we don't have the RTI 
the post I posted today is like, can you catch a learning disability? And you have all these kids performing at different levels across the United States. It's, uh, and if you move from one state to another, you know, you're in the group that you're compared, how can you tell how different you are from the, just everybody around you? I mean, maybe everybody around you is having that problem. Is that really then a learning disability? We don't, yeah. we don't have any local norms. So how can we even, I mean, good, I would think good testing, you would not just have national norms, you would have local norms too. So how can you even determine how a kid's performing with his peers if you don't even know what the local norms are? Exactly. Um, and, and and the whole norms, you know, are, I've been disrupted with, with COVID. We still don't have really uh, norms because we had so much learning loss as a as a country now we are getting better but but uh really impacted our kids who struggled to learn in the first place but then we had COVID. but what's interesting too is is languages words matter words matter and in 2002 we called cognitive tests iq tests because we were using a set of cognitive tests to get an iq well we don't really have an iq test we have a set of cognitive tests that will yield an IQ. It'll also yield other other things. We don't call it by that. Uh, and uh, the the argument against norm reference testing, if you read uh, everything they write, they still call it IQ tests. Well, the uh, um, the WISC or Intelligence Scales for Children, the 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 WJ is, has a, a GIA score. They don't talk about how the individual strengths and weaknesses uh, is what we look at and not just that global IQ score. Uh, and and if you look at test manuals, I'd like to do that in my spare time and study that, people have individual differences. Now, most people, most people literally are, if you look at the, the, the best source of uh, my argument for why we need norm reference tests is they do help classify and sort because even the WISC manual most of the kids, 2,000 people took that WISC, 2,000 kids. And of those 2,000 kids, the first seven tests that they were given, 96% of those kids, 96% of the kids who took the WISC, and this is right out of the manual, had scores that did not vary by more than 11 points. And you can look at confidence intervals for that. So in other words, when they had statistically similar scores, or we call them flat profiles. All the scores were, were less than 11 points apart. They're within that standard deviation. They're inside of that. Uh, doesn't mean it can't you know impact something, but that's where we get that flat profile. Well, 4% of those kids had lots of variance, oh, greater than 11 points. Uh, and so, yes, that's where that unusualness comes from when we look at base rates and things. And so there is a group of, of the population uh, about five percent that when you test the or four or five percent when you when you give them a set of cognitive tests it's going to separate and sort kids who are developing normally in that test versus kids who are are atypical and so words matter you know they it, it's not just an iq test and they keep boiling it back down to that and it's it's uh it's more than that as as most of us know i hope you you say that we should call it cognitive ability. Well, that's what the tests are called. Mm-hmm. And I saw one of the good questions that you sent about that. This was um, 
intellectual disability versus cognition. Well, the, the law, what ended up in the law was intellectual disability. And uh, there is some comments in the uh, regulations that literally say the term cognitive is not an appropriate term for intellectual uh, development. Now, it says it can be included. Cognitive tests definitely can be included in intellectual development. But, co but uh, IQ is not uh, uh, the same as intellectual development. Uh, and cognitive testing doesn't equal intellectual development. Uh, IQ is a static, uh, what we call a static statistic. I mean, you, you gave it the test and there it is. There's your score. Development, the word development implies uh, change and growth. And brains do change and grow. And that's why I think it's still important when we do a, uh, we test a kid in first grade to, to retest them in, uh, in fourth grade three years later because of, uh, there's a big difference between the first grader brain and the third grader brain. So, so we need the, I, I still, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for uh, the continued use of, of cognitive testing to help classify and sort. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, intellectual development. Uh, Dr. Stevens and I have written about this and we have an article, a big article that's uh, we're putting the fine uh, final edits on uh, explains that again, that intellectual development is not just your cognition. You, what, what really contributed to your intellectual development was uh, the language skills that you were taught and the academic skills you were taught. So uh, intellectual disability in a nutshell is, is three things kind of working together, uh, your cognition, your language, and your academic skills. And surrounding all of that is your environment. It's your, it's your interaction with the environment that gave you language. You, your first, you know, if you had mom and dad that spoke whatever language, where well, there's your environment. Same way with the ways you were taught. And we contend that that's actually a better conceptualization to understand a learning disability because when we talk about the definition of a learning disability, well, it's a, it's a disorder in the basic psychological processes. There's your cognition involved in using language. Well, there, there's language and it manifests itself as not able to perform at your academics. And so that's why that, that really kind of led to the birth of CSEP because that's literally how we assess the intellectual development aspects of the legal framework. We give a set of cognitive tests, a set of language tests, and a set of achievement tests. And then we, of course, consider the environmental factors and the exclusionary factors. And uh, we're more, more able to accurately classify and sort or identify a kid with a learning disability. Right. And my argument is that's not enough, though, because I mean, yeah, you 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 choose a, a a rare. You find something that's rare in a kid, but we have things that are rare in kids that aren't disabilities. Because, I mean, say eleven percent. Uh, you know that this is in the low, like, only happens in eleven percent of kids. These these differences, but then ten ten percent of kids are left-handed, but we don't call them disabled. Well, right. And that's, you, you know what, you're exactly right. And that's what, you know, Dr. Stevens and I, uh, uh, when we develop CSEP, uh, it, it's really interesting when we train that because uh, you ask people, well, what do you know about CSEP? And, and a lot of the audience, every time 
uh, to it every time I try and say, well, you got to use a lot more informal data. Well, we've always had to use informal data because I believe and, and instructional response is part of identification. It's something I say it three times when I train that instructional response is part of identification. I don't think I think your art. Uh, that's why I'm an advocate for for incorporating elements of both. Uh, because how can we uh, um, say, for example, what if we have a kid who doesn't even speak English? How are we going to know if that if if that kid's learning abled versus learning disabled? Well, we're going to have to use instructional response data. Uh, so you're right. It, I mean, it's not sufficient to to go by itself. And and uh, another thing that we train a lot in too. Uh, and I think we we posted this on the CSEP site another day, the, an interpretation tip. Uh, scores, uh, Texas has used scores to a degree where they literally had to change the law and remove the significant variance. But scores don't identify, people do. And just be, uh, like you said, the, the test will give you something that's statistically significant, you know, that's saying this kid is different, left-handed, that was a good example. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that when I'm explaining stuff. Or, or whatever other ability it is, they're different. Difference doesn't mean disability, okay? And so that helps the, it puts the, the identification off the test now, okay? The test did its job. It said to the examiner, hey, this kid is not developing normally. Go find out uh, why. And whatever the why question is, is going to determine is the, the what question is, what does this kid need? Does this kid need just a, some uh, extra instruction? Does he need some accommodations that can be provided with 504? Or is his needs uh, so great that we need to design, specially design instruction? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's the society not providing the accommodations to all that creates the disability where it doesn't need to be there if we just gave that accommodation to everybody. And that's where I think they're trying to take down those walls. And and I think a lot of these proponents of RTI are, are saying, and you know, somebody posted, I think on the CSEP websites for you to weigh in on uh, using text-to-speech um, on, on the state test and that kind of thing. And uh, that's sort of their argument is, well, just why are we putting up barriers for kids? Just let them have the accommodations. Yes. So it's like this also is it the, the society, if we had a bunch of left-handed people and we didn't give them left-handed desks and le make left-handed scissors, are we then creating a problem that we don't need to have? <laughs> so, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, so I, I think you kind of answered the question about how this report really impacted you as a pr practitioner um, and a teacher and educator. Uh, so some people read the report and they determined that the IQ tests um, were not needed. And then, but you, you sort of took a different um, route and probably a lot of that led to CSEP. Um, so well, you know what really, what, what led to CSEP was at that time in, in 2002, I was fresh off being a diagnostician who engaged in the practice of the time of, of IQ achievement discrepancy. And even though I was brand new, I, I didn't understand how tests were constructed. And I did not understand how um, um, flawed that method was. 
Uh, and it really took until, you know, when we evolve in our history, when we when we moved away from discrepancy and we started doing the, the first version of cross battery without the X bass, that really changed my thinking. But then what really changed my thinking was uh, being a trainer for the Woodcock Johnson and having uh, been, you know, Fred Shrank, Nancy Mather, and really understanding the limitations of the norm reference test. And that's a that's a big idea I want to get forth to this all these hard workers here on a Friday is the, the uh, we are pro uh, cognitive achievement and language test. We're pro norm reference test. If the examiner understands how limited they are. And so we are advocates for the responsible use of norm reference tests to inform the, the examiner, Hey, this kid's not developing typically go find out. And that's it. I mean, that, and, and the state, pretty much uh, says that. And actually, uh, and I think you know this, Nazi, where, where there was a 11 groups. NASP was one of the groups, ASHA, Learning Disability Association, uh, advocated for the proper use of a norm reference test. And what, what the state has been telling us is to inform educational decisions and to point out areas where a kid is struggling or excelling, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so we don't, we have never ever pushed uh, CSEP as a smoking gun uh, model. Uh, we've we've tried to separate ourselves from the other PSW models because we we frankly don't believe those are PSW models. They're they're a revision of the IQ achievement discrepancy. But unfortunately, sometimes in people's writings and and uh, criticisms, we get CSEP gets lumped in to a PSW model. Well, well, I believe we're the we are the only PSW model because we do look at uh, instruction. We do we have the time elements. Uh, to it um, and things like that. We, that's where our distinction is from, say, a, a cross battery or, or, or Milton Dean's model. All of those are revisions of discrepancies. And so we, we we're misunderstood in some realms. I know like like uh, the RTI folks I, and, and I, I honor their work. I share their work uh, with people. Uh, we believe in in a, a common sense testing very as limited as possible as limited as that's why we just say give the core you know the core is going to give you the depth and the breadth uh but we want to uh, uh you know make make it clear that we are advocates for the proper use of tests and the proper use is understanding the limitations of them and and that's what i think the field struggles with is they overvalue that information and they misuse it uh for uh identification. So um, you wrote an article in response to that. First of all, the, the link that is up there right now is the um, pin to the President's Commission on Excellence report. Um, if you haven't, if you can't see that, you might want to swipe down to refresh and check that out. Um, I'll give a few more minutes to check that out, but and put, before I put another pin. Um, but you wrote an article you say in the article that several commenters stated that the intra-individual differences, particularly in cognitive functions, are essential to identifying a child um, with SLD. And how do the commenters come to those conclusions? What about IQ tests make them essential? Um, and who who are these commenters? Is what I was um, what I was curious about. 
Well, the commenters are are unnamed people. It's, it's anybody when they put up a uh, oh a a bill or you know something that's being considered for authorization or passing, they'll allow public comments. So there was a you know lots of lots of people commenting on on that about the test. And one of the things that it says in the comment section is we don't believe that it, it, the entry you know it's not uh, essential uh, for those intra individual. Um, strengths and weaknesses and because it is not a uh, and I might misquote it just a little bit it's not a reliable uh, uh, marker for SLD now uh, I would uh, and really to me when I read it it's like it's not a smoking gun you know it's like that you know a lot of PSW folks that's what they contend that that test if it's for their strengths and weaknesses on there they got a sld well we've always preached difference doesn't mean disability sometimes you can have a kid with sld whose uh uh, uh cognitive profile looks quote unquote normal why would that happen well the context is totally different from the classroom versus the testing situation and uh so conditional analysis is something that we uh, teach just like task demand analysis. We really, you know, uh, de-emphasize that standard score that people like to hang their hat on. Now, do I, I think it's important to be comprehensive. Uh, if the law says intellectual development, it says, or intellectual development, uh, we should, we should assess it. I think we should assess it. And, uh, I, it, and I believe it also does help us understand that learner to inform instruction. And some of the arguments are always, well, that model or the, you know, doesn't inform, IQ achievement does not inform this uh, uh, instruction, but a PSW does. Now, does, is it from the test? No, it's from all the data informs the instruction, uh, but it does help us also identify accommodations. The part of the, the definition is listen, think, and speak. And the tests that we give are in a very controlled environment where we can see, hey, this, you know, there's a reason why a kid can't listen in class because he's distracted and little Susie's in the class. But when I'm testing that kid, I can see if that kid can listen in my little laboratory that I've created in my office. And if you can't listen in that little laboratory, well, he, that kid struggles to listen and that could help explain why he's not learning. So that would lead to an accommodation of teacher, make sure you check for understanding. And so, uh, um, anyway, that's, that's just, uh, you know, an example of how we, uh, how we view these tests. Right. And, and I, I think, um, in talking to some of these other, you know, the more RTI people, I, I do hear that, you know, like they say that it's not, it's not, a, like you said, the smoking gun, the, if it's a way that it should be identifying, it should be able to do the same for every, every kid with a learning disability, identify the same way. And um, that it should be quick and simple and easy, and it shouldn't take a lot of our time and, um, and our resources, and that our resources should be going towards towards helping kids and teaching kids and um, intervening with kids. And um, but I just feel like we just can't get all this intervention going if we don't have local norms. And that's why I've been pushing really the curriculum-based measures because they help identify and create local norms. Our evaluation tools are limited yeah. if we only have, I mean, formal tests are great. We, they're one tool, but there's there's classroom data, there's observation data, but curriculum-based measures provide local norms that, that could be another tool. 
Well, exactly, and we and really the the one of the most important norm groups that get tested. Uh, Dr. Stevens and I, uh, when Dr. Stevens and I met, uh, I was really interested in three tiered models of support, and she was really in, into CBMs, and so we we used to train RTI all over Texas, and it's a tough sell, and the toughest sell was the CBMs. Now, what's interesting that you say that is day three of CSEP training. If there was like a four day series, day three. Uh, I start off the, uh, I use the RTI network to, to train day three. And I, I literally say, imagine a uh, world without norm reference tests. What are we going to do? And I show them, uh, I teach them CBMs. Uh, and there's a lack of knowledge uh, from teachers. And, and this is not included in DIAG programs. So it's not a, it's, uh, it's included in Midwestern's DIAG program. But our, our folks know what CBMs are and the value of them. They are you know, good to establish a baseline. Uh, and, and they're also really good to make uh, uh, educate me to to uh, monitor progress, of course, but to make impact statements. I want to make a, a, another quick big idea point is a, a, another difference of CSAP from the other uh, statistical quasi discrepancy models. We call them discrepancy in disguise models. Um, is we don't use achievement tests to measure achievement in, in CSEP. We use actual achievement date, data to establish under achievement. We use achievement uh, tests as a measure of, to add to the, to the base of intellectual development. Because, you, you know, where do you separate the brain from passage comprehension? Where, where does language end in that? How is that just a pure achievement measure? Where does the, the verbal reasoning go on a passage comp? And and I'm I'm moving towards some of this thinking. It's 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 incorporated definitely in the CSEP, but the, a lot of uh, folks say, well, why give a bunch of cognitive tests when you could just give achievement tests? Well, you know what? That's a that's a really a good argument it needs to be investigated because uh, uh, why do we do that? Uh, there's a couple leading researchers I know that make no distinction, and we're 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 one of them. We're we're more practitioners. We're more bridgers. We bridge the research to the practice. Uh, but we don't make that distinction and and those other models and i'm not trying to bash them it just it is what it is they still have that discrepancy thinking you know like the xbas has you know you have to your fcc and your icc and then you have to have it discrepant from that achievement box by a norm by a limited norm reference test and that's why we're out on those types of models uh, but uh, that is a big idea as well. We, we, the actual achievement data, the informal data set, uh, people forget when we do CSEP, we show them the, uh, to, to really do a complete evaluation, you need three large data sets. You need a historical data set. That's a powerful piece of data. The older the kid gets, the more important that historical data set is because it gives you evidence as this kid, how's his intellectual development? Uh, that's where the patterns emerge. Okay. And so there's where the time, this is why our, our model is not a real uh, static. We don't get static scores. We really look at the de intellectual development, but so the historical data starts that process. The next set of data that's important to use is what we call the formative data set. What's going on this year, you know, response to tier one instruction, response to any kind of supplemental instruction, tutoring, Sylvan, we don't care, uh, or we do care, but we want that second data set to be uh, an informal instructional response data. And, if, and instructional response, you can't get away from it. 
It says database documentation of repeated assessments. It says we have to ensure underachievement is not due to instruction. Uh, I pulled up the legal framework. I was going to cite in, in uh, I, I, the legal framework. I would invite everybody to look at that section under SLD, and you're going to see a, a legal citation for Nickleby. That's where Nickleby and IDEA really kind of merge. Well, the third data set is your intellectual development data set you're from your course. And of course we go course selective. You have a kid with a, a, a dyslexia. Well, that's a specific, specific learning disability. And we might dig a little deeper selectively. We found over the last eight years using CSEP that most, most questions can be answered with the core. Uh, and so, but again, it's dependent. Norm reference tests uh, uh, have to be anchored, and we, we talk about that a lot. We've got to anchor. If you have a low score on a norm reference test, well, you got a low score on a low, low norm reference test. You got to ask yourself two questions: Do I have corroborating data that that supports this low score? And if this score is truly low, what does it impact? You know, there's sometimes, and that's that's an interpretation piece. There's sometimes we have low scores, I, and I, I challenge Diag's. Uh, sometimes on this. Okay, you got a low score here and you called it a weakness. That's fine. Uh, but if it doesn't impact anything, uh, it, it's not really, it, uh, it's a so what score. And and what we do is assign a so what score too much value in those uh, discrepancy type models. A so what score is a so what score. I have no other corroborating data and it doesn't impact anything. Okay, they did poor on this test. So what? Okay, and then we we look we analyze the other scores, and I'm describing really task demand analysis. We look at the we look at give them a set of tests and look at the low scores, and and then and incorporate it with our our other two data sets that I was describing. I call them rabbit holes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, what happens is what we, and you called it. I mean, we know this. Twenty years later, we are still missing the uh, in the the formative data set. It's the one that's elusive in Texas for sure. Uh, and uh, so what 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 ends up happening is we start trying to test more and test more and test. It, is, it tend to make me feel like uh, like they distract me from the yeah. academic problem. Whereas if I do give a couple of CBMs, I actually am paying more attention to the academic problem, and it's guiding me well, because I don't have that good hypothesis handed to me. You're right, and I haven't looked at who's all in the clubhouse, but uh, I know on, I'm, I'm seeing if I trained anybody in here uh, outside the university. Um, we, and then this is in the last two years, we have really moved into, uh, you, can use C, you can use CBMs in lieu of a norm reference test uh, and might even give you more data. So, and, and just like a reading inventory, a reading inventory uh, it's going to give you a word list. It's going to give you a fluency score. It's going to give you, can the kid answer literal questions? Can he answer inf inferential questions? It's going to give you a grade level of, of where we should maybe uh, scaffold his instruction. And also a good reading inventory can turn into a listen and comp uh, inventory because say you got a fourth grader, he's not reading on a fourth grade level. Well, you found out he's on a second grade level. He can read 90% of the words. So he's his instructional level is second grade, uh, but he's a fourth grader. And I read a story to him and answer, asked the same questions. And we could say his listening comp is 
kind of where he should be. So the the uh, if if we just give tests to get scores, we're leaving the most important data on the table. We're leaving it on the table. Uh, and so uh, one thing that's really kind of evolved in my thinking is the more task demand analysis you do and the more conditional analysis you do, you can apply that to other other types of data uh, and then just get a really good picture of this kid that literally does lead to intervention. And so that's why I say these these these, you know, the the RTI versus, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, we need to blend the blended braid those two models. Uh, um, with some some thought. Mm -hmm. Do you think standard scores are going somewhere? Like, are they going to go away? I don't know. They're, then they can't. They're they're a property of the bell curve. But standard scores. I'm going to make a big point. Standard scores tell a position in line, and they may overestimate or underestimate a construct. So that you need to know going in there. We have called an 85 a strength. You know, is it an average score? Yes. It's within 68, 68% of the scores are between 85 and 115. I look at 85 and go that the average to me means most, you know, if I'm using a, you know, what does average mean? Well, most people are typical people, but I'm, I'm not going to call an 85 a strength because I'm the, I'm in the 16th percentile. There's 84 people in front of me. Uh, how is that a strength? And, and what I've seen, and, and that's what our, we were, I literally taught that, 15 years ago, I've changed my, I'm going to call all my people up and apologize. Uh, but uh, I've seen kids get ruled out because they said, well, they're intact or there's a strength. And you look at their scores and it's at 86. Well, 80s, okay, they're in the 16th percentile. How can you call that a, we assign too much power to it. Uh, and so anyway, uh, I don't think they can't go away because of the nature of a bell curve. But I will tell you this, if you go look at some of the, the most recent manuals, the Wyatt four is one of probably the best one right now to look at, uh, in the interpretive options in the back, they start off with demands analysis, task demand analysis, and then they go into, yeah, of course you can use them for discrepancies. Um, uh, but no standard and standard scores, uh, they overestimate or underestimate constructs. The RPI on a WJ is great uh, because it'll it'll help you reconcile that standard score as as far as their uh, proficiency level, which is more indicative of of their uh, functioning. Now I wouldn't hang my hat on that either. I still need a corroborate, corroborating piece of data. People often ask, well, what if you don't have an RPI score? Not a big deal because if you've got your historical data set and your informal data set. Take that score and ask those two questions. Do I have corroborating data with this score? And if, and what would it impact if it was truly low? So you, you just have to anchor all scores, regardless of whether or not you have an RPI or not. But standard scores do not tell someone's ability. They say this is where they stand in line and they are subject to lots of limitations. And, and that's what, we, you know, when we train CSEP, we, I start off with that, the limitations of the standard scores. Right. So where do you think we go from here in terms of how we assess for intellectual development and still beat the RTI drum? Uh, we feel like one doesn't engage the other. How do you talk about the role of discrepancies in helping us use our professional? I know you talk about the role of discrepancies in helping us to use our professional judgment rather than being determining factors. And, you know, I'm seeing that a lot of these tests and 
um, writers are talking more about these factors, not as determining factors as well. They're talking about them as risk factors, um, sort of that you are at risk um, for a learning disability if you have this A, B, and C, you know, quality on an IQ test or into a test of um, cognitive ability. So, um, so you know, talking about risk factors and, you know, one of the analogies that the RTI people give is that it's not a binary condition. And so it's more like for not um, sort of something that's there or it's not, but it's something more that, um, that could be some, more like compared to hypertension, for exactly, example. Exactly, exactly. And that was that was that was actually uh, I see that a lot in the literature, which I believe, and it's also a lot of it is in the uh, uh, that that president's report. It actually says that too, and that's the problem in special ed is and because sometimes uh, we dichotomize everything when we should be you know data is dimensional. Uh, there's different degrees of a reading disability. And but we we have to categorize it as either or it's either this or it's that. And we, we take that kind of thinking that that's literally a thinking cognitive distortion, meaning uh, one of the one of the main cognitive distortions is black and white thinking. It's either this or it's that. Well, that's what we do when we have scores. We look at the score. And go, oh, this is a strength. This is a weakness instead of, well, maybe it would depend on, you know, when this process needs to be used, you know, we just assign it a, a, a we dichotomize dimensional data, you know, and we got to ask questions like, you know, does this, is this a, a, a condition that's occasionally happens? Is it all day, every day? Uh, is it pervasive? So uh, the, the, the way we figure out intensity is the level of supports a kid would need. Uh, but yeah, we, the, that point, I mean, I a hundred percent agree with it, that, that things happen along, uh, a dimension, you know. Right. I so I mean, like, if it's hypertension, for example, you might, if a, if a patient was asking a doctor, "Do I have hypertension?" The doctor might say, "Well, do you smoke?" And maybe the person will say, "Yes, I smoke," but that doesn't mean he has hypertension. I, not everybody that smokes has hypertension. Okay, so maybe, or uh, do you get exercise? But not everybody that doesn't exercise has hypertension. But when yeah. you take somebody who has all these these risk factors, their parents were, their parents had hypertension. They don't exercise. They don't, uh, they don't eat, they eat fast food. They, they smoke, they don't get exercise. When you put all these together and then you take their pulse and their, their heart rate and their blood tests and see how much cholesterol they have, you put all this whole picture together, then you're like, okay, yeah, you have hypertension. And that's, yeah. that's what we're talking about when you're talking about risk factors. That's what we're measuring. We're not measuring in smoking gun, like you said. Yeah, well, smoking those camels and those Marlboros, <laughs> hypertension. But another, another good, and that's a great analogy, the hypertension. Another good analogy that I like to use, too, is diabetes. I mean, mm -hmm. if you've got mild diabetes, you need to change your diet. 504. If your diabetes is not just controlled by diet, you may need medication. So that's special ed. You know, that's the mm -hmm. analogy right there. Mm -hmm. uh, there is different degrees of diabetes. Uh, there's different degrees of hypertension. There's different degrees of, of, of learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. Shoot. I think we all uh, have, uh, we have intermittent hypertension. If we're, we're uh, diags when we <laughs> leave work for two hours and come back and there's five referrals on our desk. <laughs> yes, and then our you have to yeah. So our our hypertension can be controlled if we reform general ed 
to really give a serious, uh, uh, give RTI a serious, serious try and early I, intervention. I read somewhere that uh, this um, 2002 report that a lot of people were really disappointed because they expected the report to conclude that it, special education needed to be fully funded. And that didn't happen. And I know there were these sort of town halls that they went around to different towns and Houston was one of them where they had yeah. people testify. And it was two, I know Sharon Vaughn testified and um, there was another guy that testified, Fran, Fran, Dr. Francis, David Francis from University of Houston. So I was just kind of curious if you were if you were listening to those public hearings or at that time? Well, or... I was, no, I was, uh, I was a, a practicing diag at that time. So I, and I was, I had little kids and uh, it was really the report kind of turned me on to, uh, I mean, I knew, I knew people of name, you know, because of doing literature reviews and things like that. So at that time I wasn't, I am now. And, and what's interesting, I, uh, I don't want to discredit the RTI only folks. That's their position. Um, I, but there was, and I'm not saying it's them. So I want to make that clear. If anyone's on there listening from that are friends with them, don't, don't say I said this about them, but there was some, and I searched for it today. I couldn't find it, uh, was there is, there's some politics behind this. Uh, some people would contend that, you know, they, they report, you know, that SLD is not a real construct. And therefore, we need to we need to just treat it with title money, uh, meaning you know like we do when we hire reading tutors with title money, and uh, people that was the argument. We already have a system for kids who can't read, and so there was some politics there. And again, that would have diverted all the funds to general ed. There's also another, and and I'm, I'm there's politics going on all the time. That, uh, you know, I just read a Houston Chronicle article I, when I was kind of preparing for today. I was kind of looking at some history and I read an article out of the Houston Chronicle. And uh, the article was, do, you know, about the, the cap and all of that. Was that to, to doom public education? Because there is a big push to privatize uh, and, and do the voucher system and take all the money from public ed and make it private. So there's, there's always some politics behind all of this. And I know you're a you you like to follow that since you're from washington but uh you know so th so there's still there's all kinds of stuff that goes into these these laws that we follow that impact us every day and impact kids you know somebody's political persuasion is really impacted what's in that law mm -hmm. so it, it, it we were that's what we were studying back then was all the influences uh that come in there but but one of the influences is showing one side of research and and that's that's my criticism with uh, some of the literature that's out there. So they just ignore a whole body of research. They don't acknowledge it. And so all the all the people who are cited are usually of like minds. And really nothing changes if you hang around people that you think the same. You gotta go, you gotta get in some, some battles with people to change your thinking. My well, that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to get everybody to come together and, and yeah. actually learn from each other and present all different views and so if anyone has you know of course some viewpoint you want me to present i'm always open to it well that's what you know nazi i know we're about to run out of time but you really this is a really valuable uh project that you do and all the posts that you do because you do bring in different minds because when i hear something that i go oh, i don't know if i agree with that 
you know, the next, my next step is I'm on this damn computer looking up everything <laughs> and, and it, it makes my, and, and with, with an open mind that, Hey, I could be wrong. I, I don't want to be saying stuff for years that I'm wrong. I've done it before. I, I used to say an 85 is average. Okay. I have to have some kind of intellectual humility and, uh, uh, I have to reach deep for that intellectual humility sometimes, but it's still there. All uh, right. You know, I got uh, who I got coming next week. <laughs> I didn't even see it. Who is it? Mark Shin. Oh, well, good. Well, he was on here a little bit earlier. He was uh, listening. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Shin wasn't, he was on here before, right? He didn't speak. He just, he listened last week, I think, or the week before. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah he And he's definitely a RTI uh, CBM guy. Uh, oh, yeah. Great right. researcher, does great work. I would uh, definitely say he's a founding father of one, one, I mean, of many, probably 20, 40 founding fathers of special education, you know, just in terms yeah. of the initial research. And um, I, I, I really, you know, finding those founding fathers to me is um, really special to me because, you know, what, what did they have? What was their ideas and what, what did they have in mind? And it really tells you, you know, are, are we, did, did their dreams sort of come true of, of how to close the gap between the haves and the have nots and how to include kids with, with disabilities and all of that. I, it, it really motivates me to feel like I'm, I could be well, part of that, that original vision. I love that. My history, my, uh, Dr. Bullock at UNT, he's, he's a founding father. Uh, we we really looked at the history and how we just keep repeating things over and over. So I've always uh, uh, looked at that. But, uh, you know, think about how young special ed still was in 2002. It only was 27 years old. Well, we're, mm -hmm. we are 20 years later than that. We're, we're you know, uh, two years, we're going to be 50 years old. So yeah. we, were almost, we were just almost at, we were just young kids. 20, in 2002, 2001, you know, so special ed was only 25 years old at that time. Uh, of course, that seemed like a long time, but the older you get, you know how time is. But uh, yeah, that were almost 50. So we got we got more more research to look at and more everything. And yeah, when uh, I when I was, I mean, our CBMs was the big part of our training when I was at University of Maryland, and when we were doing CBMs, they didn't have norms and they weren't, they weren't. So uh, you were talking about just even the development of norm reference tests. CBMs have also gone down that route where they've really been perfected and the norms have been developed and each of the items on the tests have been assessed for consistency, uh, validity and their consistency and all of that. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I know you're beating that CBM drum and so am I. <laughs> Who else is? TEA. There's two guidance documents that literally say uh, uh, we should, uh, evaluations should include CBMs to more accurately identify uh, a student's pattern of strengths and weaknesses and link them to instruction. Uh, so I'm glad you're having Mark Shen, uh, uh, this big CBM guy. Everybody needs to listen to, to that. But uh, yeah, we, we have, we're not only encouraged, uh, the state says we should do it. And, uh, uh, it's a, it's a critical piece. I do them all the time in my evaluations. Well, I do. One of, he told me that, um, they were actually designed 
by the federal government for, you know, they gave grants to develop them for the purpose of measuring IQ, uh, uh, IEP goals, for the purpose of measuring IEP goals, not to create a, something to to refer kids. Well, exactly. That's not what they were validated for. That was, you know, and, and CBMs really, they came out of University of Minnesota and that's, I think where he went. He's a disciple of Stan Dino. Stan Dino is like the, the father of CBMs. Right. But it was because traditional assessments, one of the reasons why was traditional assessments uh, are not good for kids with severe disabilities. But CBMs were for, for basic skills, for IEP development, for, for kids who were IDD. I mean, at the time they were developed, SLD was not a, a, the big category that was uh, in special ed at that time. I mean, that blew, and that was part of that report. It blew up. It went up 300% over uh, from 92 to 2002. It went up 300%. Uh, so back when they were developed and designed, it wasn't for the purposes that we use them now. Uh, and so that's, that's another thing, you know, uh, you know, we always criticize for not having uh, reliable uh, reliability, but I do question the validity of using CBMs to identify. Now, as part of the process, you bet we need to have them, but that's why I still think we need to have some tools that are a little more uh, that have, that are really statistically supported for reliability and validity. Well, yeah, I mean, if you want to say, is this for ident identification, but, but they are certainly reliable and valid measures for progress and for the, the skills that they measure. Yeah. I mean, when you get to identification, for example, if you want to say, uh, is this because of the kid's age or grade, they don't provide CBMs don't give you age based norms. They give you grade based norms. And so how could you, then tell if it's just because they're young that they're having trouble with the skill or if it's because they Actually, really are. Yeah. Well, the is to set a goal to give you a baseline. And then, then you, you start instructing and you make instructional adjustments. Everything we do is our best estimate. It's just our best guess. And we want to be as precise as we can. I, I said this yesterday, I was trained in Duncanville on bilingual stuff. You know, it, it, kids with second language learners, it's hard to find something with, a lot of validity and reliability so if you on the on the test and so you have to be reliable in your process meaning uh you need to get multiple sources of data reliability means consistency and if they're consistently uh saying the same thing well then there you have it but those cbms there's your baseline and if you overestimate it a little bit it's going to show up in your progress monitoring mm -hmm. uh so yeah, well, um, I'm going to just read through some of the comments and I apologize. I get so wrapped up in the conversation that I didn't. I do too. I could talk about this all <laughs> night. Uh, uh, it's one person says, what role can map scores data play in analysis? Those are map scores are CBMs. If your district is using map scores, good for them. Those are CBMs. The only thing I have against map scores is they're not free. So, um, you know, if you you want to use map, you know, the diagnostician wants to use map scores and you don't have them in your district, it's not like you could just get them for free where there are a lot of them that are available online for free. Uh -huh. So um, well, map is map is it is a, it is a curriculum based uh, measure, but we have to the uh, uh, it, it monitors progress over the year. It's more like it, it, we screen it three times a year, middle of the year, you know, and all right. that. Um, Map would be so much better if there if we use the progress monitor we we use the maps to to help develop our small groups and then use the right. weekly progress monitoring probes to monitor progress. Maps is great. I love I, I, 
I, I, I depend on it and my reports. Uh, right. And if we, the problem too, the criticism of, of maps is that, or any, any curriculum based measures is if we're not making decisions based on the results, it's just a waste of time and a waste of energy and people get uh, dis, disenchanted by all the work of collecting the data when we don't do anything with it. We don't make, we don't change what we're doing based on the results of it. So um, you're talking about somebody's got to an, analyze that data every three weeks, change that small group, make sure that intervention that you're doing is is an intervention that's evidence-based for what that child's struggling with according to the map. So that's um, definitely something to consider. So um, Allison says CBMs are critical and my district uses them. However, I'm finding from teachers that the district often requires the teachers to give CBM before the content is even taught. Teachers have literally told me to ignore the scores on the CBM for that reason. And that's as a result of some mistraining because um, there are different kinds of assessments. There's assessments for identifying, there's assessments for accountability, there's assessments for, uh, for trying for formative assessments. Formative assessments are, did you learn what I taught? This is not the purpose of a CBM. CBMs are for monitoring the progress of, uh, of uh, their, their basic skills. And, um, you know, that's not always what teachers are teaching. So, but we still have to make sure that those basic skills are becoming more and more automatic. And the automaticity is something that we really ignore a lot of times, especially with the TEKS. We teach five different ways to do a math problem, but we never make sure that they're automatic in any of them. So, and if we're having to use all our cognitive energy to solve and calculate, and we can never really put that cognitive energy to problem solving, and we end up making mistakes, and it's just the whole cycle. So uh, the teachers that say to ignore it because it's not what they taught, they really don't understand the purpose of the CBM, that there are different purposes for different kinds of assessments. And I think we, as diagnosticians, are assessment specialists, and we have to understand the whole assessment battery of the of, of the school, not just our diagnostic assessments. Exactly. Because that all thought factors into it. So Megan says she's very excited that you're here, and she says you've been really been helping her and email, <clears throat> emailing her with a problem, so she's grateful for that. And Becky says, can you post links to the guidance documents from TEA for CBMs? Yes, um, I'll tell you where they are. Uh, one is in the uh, uh, one is on a, a frequently asked question document of eighty nine ten forty. The other one, if you Google RTI and SLD in Texas, it'll take you to the RTI uh, section of uh, the uh, oh the uh, um, TEA's website, and there'll be a there'll be a PDF document on there that talks about using RTI data in your evaluation. And that's where it says, here, here's what's interesting is 891040 frequently asked questions. The last time it was updated was 2010. And in that document, it said schools are encouraged to use CBMs. Well, if you fast forward to this RTI document, which I think was eight years later, it says schools should. And so there, there's that's more of a, hey, you need to do this. Uh, the other thing, um, if you look on the Child Find website, which I should be getting a kickback because I, boy, I love that site. Go look at the, uh, uh, there's a dyslexia and SLD presentation 
uh, on there. It's only about a year old. And especially in the dyslexia part, they talk all about CBMs. And so there's a, in TEA, they want us to do that. That's why they, they post that stuff. So uh, some people are hesitant to use them in their um, evaluations, probably due to lack of training. But, but again, we just over, uh, we just put too much emphasis on those tests of the, of the norm reference test. Uh, but yes, when we're the assessment specialists, we need to understand those CBMs. But our, our poor teachers struggle with that. Um, a lot of them do. But I mean, you go to the doctor every every time you go to the doctor, they weigh you and stick a thermometer in your mouth. Yeah. But that doesn't, and you have a broken toe. What does that have to do with? <laughs> you know, so you're to tell the doctor not to take your temperature and not to measure you, weigh you. That's one more opportunity to get uh, a, a vital their vi the vital signs on you that makes a trend over time. Uh, so. You know, that's what a CBM's for is for monitoring that uh, precisely your your chain your the your basic skills your vital signs. Um, and if you want to know more about CBM's, uh, Tammy's got a great lineup of beyond the score um, trainings coming up for free. If yeah. you haven't gone to the website, and that's what her dissertation was over was CBM's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, we we uh, we love CBMs together. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she she is hosting me. I appreciate it on uh, next week. Oh, you, you know what she is? I cannot wait for that. Yes, yeah. plug plug for Nazi on uh, Beyond the Score. <laughs> Thank you. And she beats also, the drum. She's a beats, yeah. beats a loud drum for this. Well, I mean, I feel like for years we've been taught interventions are general ed initiative, and they're none of our business. Stay in your lane. And yeah. now I feel like we've been told the wrong thing. It really is. We are, we should be the leaders in driving the instruction and intervention. That is, that is absolutely in our, in our, our in our lane. That's for us to do that. We should be actually driving that car. So, uh, and, and it makes us just feel so much more uh, purposeful and, and otherwise we'll just get burnt out if we're just testing kids and we have nothing to do with changing any of the situation. We'll get 300% more kids in, with learning disabilities again and just repeat history where we could be part of preventing that. So, um, and then another opportunity to learn more about CBMs is uh, March 22nd, I'm gonna speak at the conference uh, for region 10 and 11 that that's one of the there's i guess five or six different classes you can take on that from that conference what what date march 27th I, I might be there too yes i am there too okay yes so we'll see yeah. each other there yeah yeah and then there's tons like you could go on the easy cbm website and there's tons of videos you could go to the mtss website lots of videos there that teach about uh, curriculum-based measures for instructional design and uh, you know for instructional design is a really important part of it so a lot of stuff to check out all right and we we went a little over time this time we apologize everybody <laughs> thanks for hanging in there really appreciate it i hope everybody has a good friday evening go out and get your i know it's a little late for uh, 
for for happy hour, but uh, Shoot, they're probably already there. <laughs> there, I hear, I can hear a, somebody. I can hear a jukebox in the background. They're listening somewhere. at happy hour. <laughs> yep. All righty. Thanks everyone for joining us. Next week we got Mark Shin, so please join. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs>